The time is now. Volume 2, Episode 29, this is Employment Law Now, and I am Mike Schmidt, your host. Did you miss me? I mean, really miss me? It's been four weeks since our last episode, really for a variety of reasons. The primary one is that I finally have been able to dig out from all of the snow after these four nor'easters have hit the northeast section of the United States in just this past month alone. So all of us at uh, Employment Law Now Central here and I have finally been able to dig our way out and we are back to doing what we love doing, doing what we do best, and that is providing uh, some education, some entertainment when it comes to the employment law world. And I'm really excited because I've got a bunch of new episodes uh, coming up as we inch closer to, dare I say, the summer. A whole slew of topics and guests are going to be uh, coming aboard, uh, including the following, just by way of example. We're going to talk about tip credits and tip poolings. What are we hearing out of the Department of Labor? What are the courts doing? What are some of the new things coming down the pike when it comes to the hospitality industry and using tip credits and forcing employees to engage in tip pools one way or the other? We're going to be talking about that in an upcoming episode. Keeping with the wage and hour front, what is the fluctuating work week? Are you able to do that as an employer? When do you want to do it? When can't you do it? What should be included when your company is determining the regular rate to be used to calculate overtime? It's not as simple as you think, and we're going to break that down in a future episode. What about those companies that have suffered some sort of data breach? Beyond just the usual economic damages, there's also a reputational harm that comes to companies. How do you go about addressing it? What are the best practices in addressing reputational harm in data breach cases? Oh, and we can't forget about cannabis and marijuana. We've been hearing a lot about that on the federal side and a little bit more recently on the state side. What can employers do? What can't they do when it comes to testing for marijuana in certain states? We're going to talk about that as well. We're going to hear, as we did last year, from some very special guests coming out of the government world, an EEOC member, Department of Labor member, to give you as much information as we can and to break down a lot of the employment law issues that you and your company uh, is concerned about. But for today's episode, I want to do a rundown uh, of a bunch of noteworthy cases and developments that have been making headlines over the past few weeks and talk about why you should care about them. So let's start with our DC Now segment. Our DC Now segment. And first coming out of DC, the United States Department of Labor. We hear a lot about private lawsuits obviously filed alleging wage and hour violations. We even hear about the Department of Labor going after companies administratively for various wage and hour violations. The question here is, could the Department of Labor actually be trying to help your company now? 
Well, the United States Department of Labor's Wage and Hour Division just announced an amnesty program using the acronym PAID, P-A-I-D. It stands for Payroll Audit Independent Determination Program, P-A-I-D. It essentially gives employers an opportunity to correct minimum wage and overtime mistakes, at least on the federal side, because we're just dealing with the U.S. Department of Labor. And it also gives employers some sense of finality by having a release given as to those employees who are accepting a corrected payment after the employer does some sort of self-audit and participate in this wage and hour amnesty program. Before this program, the only way you can really settle your wage and hour case, again on the federal side, and be sure that you are going to have the finality of an effective release, because remember, in the wage and hour context, in order to have an effective release of wage and hour claims, it either has to be approved by a court or supervised by the Department of Labor. So before this program, in order to uh, make good on your wage and hour violations and get an effective and enforceable release, you typically had to have an active investigation already with the Department of Labor, uh, or you already had to have a, a commenced lawsuit, which is now being settled through the approval of a court. But here, with this new program, your company can conduct an internal audit, and if you find violations, you can then request participation in this paid program, in which case you will pay the back wages that you identify as being due, but the good news is you're not paying the liquidated damages and attorney's fees or interest or civil money penalties that might otherwise be imposed if there was a full-fledged investigation or if, in fact, you went to judgment in a lawsuit. So what's the upside of this paid wage and hour division program? Well, from the Department of Labor's standpoint, they view it as being very helpful to get companies to be proactive. And it also, they feel, helps employees get money that they're owed faster. There are a few downsides to this. You are not allowed to participate in this new program if an investigation has already started at the Department of Labor or if your company is already involved in litigation or arbitration on the issue or even if you've already been contacted by an employee or the employee's attorney to resolve the particular wage and hour issue. Another downside, potentially, is that, again, we're just talking about the federal wage and hour issues and the federal Department of Labor. It might not impact potential state liability for the wage and hour issues simply by going through this paid program. But like everything else we talk about on this podcast, it's important to have all of this on the table. It's important for you to understand what's out there, and then you and your company can determine, given whatever unique issues exist with your company, with your workforce, what makes the most sense for you to do. There are some upsides, there are some downsides, but this paid program, this self-audit paid program by the United States Department of Labor may be worth at least giving some thought to. Continuing with the DC Now segment, let's move it over to the EEOC. Um, and as we've been talking a lot over the past few episodes, this Me Too movement in the sexual harassment world continues to uh, snowball, I guess, continues to gain a lot of traction. But I read something that was very interesting the other day, and that is that the EEOC just reported that it has not seen a surge in sexual harassment complaints since the beginning of the Me Too movement. What they have seen and what they have been talking about is the fact that more employees are threatening to sue for sexual harassment. 
So it doesn't mean that there are no claims out there. They're just not getting to the EEOC yet. I do find it fascinating that the EEOC is itself saying that they haven't seen a real surge in sexual harassment cases yet, but then again, it is only the end of March, and uh, maybe as the year progresses, those charges, those complaints uh, will start to, uh, to come in. But for the moment, um, I can certainly attest to the fact that the demand letters um, and the private lawsuits um, have certainly been increasing in the sexual harassment world, uh, and it's you know it's a tough climate out there, not only for those companies and those individual defendants being sued, but then when you start thinking about the end of the line for litigation and what happens if you get to trial, how are juries starting to look at these sexual harassment cases, and are they looking at it uh, much different than they used to, uh, given the Me Too movement? At the end of the day, we will continue to monitor this and, and see if, uh, in fact, there is an uptick, uh, noticeable uptick in sexual harassment charges being brought uh, with the EEOC. But in the meantime, as we've said before, you as a company really need to keep vigilant when it comes to making sure you have the appropriate policies, making sure you're doing the appropriate training, and making sure um, that you are communicating with your employees, both managers and non-managers, as to what is expected and what is appropriate for your workplace. Let's move on to the Trending Now segment. Um, I told you last year about an interesting wage and hour debate that's been taking place really around the world, um, and it got a lot of headlines when France passed a law last week, um, and other parts of the world have been debating it, but really France got a lot of the headlines when they passed a law that included an email curfew provision. What do I mean by an email curfew? Well, that means that employers are prohibited from requesting or requiring employees to respond to emails, engage in work emails when they're on vacation or when it's off working hours. Well, it looks like that trend may be coming across the pond to the United States for private employers and their workers here. And surprise, surprise, New York City may be that jurisdiction to lead the charge. One New York City councilman just introduced legislation that, uh, except in certain emergency situations, employers would be prohibited from disciplining or firing employees for refusing to respond to emails and other electronic communications outside working hours. Now, employers can call and send email, but they have no recourse and cannot take any action if the employee doesn't respond. It's really another means uh, for this particular uh, city government here in New York City to continue to try to regulate all aspects of the workplace. And when it comes to um, this 24-7 working world that we're all in, um, we see the good in it, we see the bad in it, but here is really the first example of someone here in the United States beginning to think about ways to start regulating that aspect of the workplace. Um, it's consistent with what we've been seeing in other areas, dealing more generally with the work-life balance, whether it's paid sick leave laws, whether it's minimum wage, whether it's predictive scheduling, all issues that we've talked about. This is consistent with that trend that we've been seeing sweep across the country uh, to try to address work-life balance. 
And it will be interesting, number one, to see uh, if this particular legislation um, gains any traction in New York City, um, but more broadly than that, whether this is a concept that other legislatures, uh, either on the federal side or on the state and local sides, um, decide to take up in the coming weeks and months. We'll certainly keep you posted on that. Also, in the Trending Now segment, let's go back to the NLRB, because the NLRB continues to make all kinds of news. We have also talked in prior episodes about the three-part test that I like to use when you as a company are analyzing whether to take adverse action against somebody who posts something or does something that the company just doesn't like. Maybe he or she says something on Facebook. Maybe he or she is promoting something outside uh, the workplace, some cause that you as a company just don't like. And remember, I told you the three steps that I think are important to, to use based on the NLRB's recent precedent to determine whether you can take adverse action against that employee. Step one, determine whether the action is concerted, right? Whether we're involving two or more people. If the answer to that is yes, step two was, is the concerted activity protected? Because not all concerted activity is protected. The activity that's protected tends to be when an employee or the, the collective group of employees are talking about or engaging in activity about the terms and conditions of the workplace. So that's step two. Step one, is it concerted? Step two, is it protected? And then you had the step three, which said, even if it is concerted activity and even if it is protected concerted activity, does the employee still lose the protection of the National Labor Relations Act because he or she has engaged in conduct that is so malicious, so reckless, that they remove themselves from the benefits of the act? They're no longer protected, in other words. And we have talked about, uh, with the Trump administration and uh, the new board uh, that we're starting to see, um, it's changing to really a pro-business board, right? It's not as much a pro-employee activist board uh, now that we're becoming uh, controlled by the Republicans. It's happening slowly and certainly with bumps, but we are seeing changes. And I think when we're talking about trending, one area that we may see some new pro-employer determinations out of the NLRB in this area is not just in terms of what's protected or what's concerted, but that third prong, in what circumstances can an employee ultimately lose the protection of the act based on the nature of the conduct engaged in. And our first real good example of that uh, was a case um, in re KHRG Employer LLC where you have a union organizing drive that started at a hotel employer. One of the employees, who was a server at the hotel restaurant, was participating in all kinds of protests during this union organizing drive. The server brought nine employees and five non-employees. So nine employees, five non-employees, a total of 14 people, into the hotel to present a petition to the general manager while the general manager was in her office in a secure basement location at the hotel. To get there, the server and these 14 other people, again, nine of whom were employed, five of whom weren't, to get there, the server apparently claimed falsely to the security guard that all of the individuals being brought to present the petition were all actual employees of the hotel. Well, when the hotel found out about this 
false claim, uh, the server was fired for what was deemed to be a serious security breach. Not surprisingly, the server filed charges. The board, however, the NLRB, unanimously affirmed the dismissal of the complaint, saying that this was not some impulsive behavior, some impulsive act that we should be protecting, this lie that resulted in a security breach by bringing at least five non-employees to the secure basement location at the hotel. So the board found that it was not an impulsive act that might be protected, some emotional act that might be protected, but it was a predetermined course of action that lost the protection of the act. So, again, this is really tied to the specific facts of this particular case, as many of these uh, determinations are, but it gives a little bit of a window into, again, another area where I think we may start to see the board coming out in a much more pro-employer um, uh, standpoint, and that is on that third prong, coming out and saying, well, we're going to see more and more conduct that the board will find uh, to remove the employee from the protections of the act. Let's move to our Noteworthy Now segment, and I've got a few cases that I do want to talk about that I think are noteworthy um, and worth thinking about. First of all, um, the first one is under the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA on the federal side, and we hear a lot about this term essential job function. Um, and remember, when it comes to the ADA, employers generally do not have to accommodate and make changes to something that is deemed to be an essential function of the job. Well, a recent case out of the Sixth Circuit, and for those of you keeping score at home, the case name is Sneed versus Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University. That Sixth Circuit case rejected the employer's argument that working a 12-hour shift was an essential function for campus police officers, primarily because required hours and the number of required hours was not listed in the essential functions portion of the job descriptions. So a takeaway there, if you do have job descriptions, and by the way, that is itself a question uh, that you really should give some thought to uh, as to whether your company wants to have written job descriptions, particularly for all positions or for just some um, positions. But if you do have written job descriptions, you might want to consider reviewing them and updating them and make sure that you understand what is an actual essential job function and what's identified as an essential job function in those written position uh, job descriptions um, because there may be some significant impacts when it comes to things like ADA claims. Next in our Noteworthy Now segment the concept of joint employment and I can tell you that this issue is not going away anytime soon and that brings us back to the NLRB and the controversies that uh, are following it. Well remember that in December this past December 2017, the NLRB scrapped the very broad Obama administration test that made it easier to pin joint liability on employers, particularly in the franchisor-franchisee context. The problem is that one of the board members deciding the case in December 2017 is a new board member who previously worked for a em private employment law firm that was involved in the court appeal of the overturned Obama decision. Oh boy. So 
the NLRB has now vacated its December 2017 decision, and uh, it's on to another try at limiting the joint employment standard as far as the NLRB goes, but now we are left currently with the old Obama administration test, which itself was very broad. And uh, those in Washington who are trying to seize this as an opportunity to resist uh, more Republican-led, more pro-employer decisions out of the NLRB um, have been successful in, uh, I guess, getting some uh, delay on this issue. But the joint employer issue is not going away anytime soon. If you are in an industry or if you uh, have operations um, where you are affiliated with, you align yourself with certain unrelated companies, uh, you may want to continue to stay abreast of the joint employer issue um, because there is going to be more to come on that. Again, keeping with the Noteworthy Now segment here, let's talk about social media in lawsuits and the discovery of social media in lawsuits. You know, from the defense standpoint, your company gets sued for some employment discrimination or harassment or retaliation, and you want to start going full-fledged into discovery and all of their Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat and Instagram and, and all of their accounts and get all of their pictures, get all of their posts. And recently, and by that I mean really the last couple of years, um, we've seen a little bit of the reins being pulled back by most courts. Some courts have allowed um, some more liberal discovery into the social media accounts of plaintiffs who are suing, um, but a lot of courts have been reluctant to engage in you know, what amounts to fishing expedition requests. The highest court in New York just came down on the side of allowing much more broad use of discovery of social media in these lawsuits. Now, this particular case is not necessarily an employment case, but it has obvious implications, I think, uh, for all lawsuits. For those keeping uh, score at home, the case name is Foreman versus Henkin. Here, um, the plaintiff suffered significant personal injuries when uh, she fell from a horse that was owned by the defendant. In the lawsuit, the defendant sought the plaintiff's entire private Facebook account. Entire private Facebook account. Not just the public postings, but things, private messages, things that were shielded from the general public, in order to defend claims that, as a result of the accident, plaintiff was claiming that there was difficulty using a computer and composing coherent messages. The plaintiff, as you would expect, refused this discovery request. Defendant moved to compel. Originally, the plaintiff was refusing to produce all this stuff on the grounds that, hey, this was my private portion, this is my private stuff, my private messages, my private posts. The Court of Appeals, which is the highest court in New York, and, and yeah, I get it, for those of you who are not in New York, that sounds a little baffling, our lowest trial court is called the Supreme Court, and our highest court is called the Court of Appeals. Uh, I can't explain it, but it is what it is. So the New York highest court, which is our Court of Appeals, said that we're going to allow very broad discovery of social media in this particular case. And there were a couple of principles that the court relied on. One, discovery tends to be very liberal when it comes to the standards for obtaining information and documents in lawsuits. Number two, there still should be and still are going to be limits to what a court will require be produced if a demand is particularly onerous. Number three, 
we need to weigh the issues on a case-by-case basis rather than just come up with a um, per se rule that you can or cannot obtain certain discovery. And here in this particular case, the court said that there was no reason to apply different standards when you're dealing with discovery of social media and no reason to apply different standards to the private portions of social media versus the public portions of social media. And in fact, that makes a lot of sense. Because if you did have a different standard when you're dealing with private portions of one social media account, well, common sense would dictate that a plaintiff could manipulate the privacy settings and deem the entire account to be quote-unquote private. So what's the takeaway here when it comes to discovery of social media and lawsuits? First of all, you need to, as always, consider what jurisdiction you're in and what the particular law is in your jurisdiction. I'm also uh, not a very big fan on just willy-nilly sending out broad discovery requests um, as a matter of form at the start of every lawsuit asking for uh, every piece of information, public and private, from every social media account. I think you uh, do yourself a disservice when you're having to justify that in front of a judge. You're far better off having narrowly tailored requests, and I also think you're far better off making the requests after you've engaged in some initial discovery that has revealed that there may be some relevant information, some relevant documents coming out of the social media accounts. Remember, at the end of the day, it's not just about who can shoot off uh, the the greatest um, forms in litigation, but can you justify to a court why you need what you are requesting? So, when there's a possibility that discovery of social media may be warranted in your particular case, consider the nature of the event at issue, the, the subject matter in your particular case, the injury or the damages claimed by the plaintiff, and other case-specific information so that you can assess if relevant information is likely to be found on Facebook or some other social media account. I think that is the analysis that a court will most likely do. And then, once you get past that first step, you then want to balance the potential utility of the information being sought against some specific privacy or other concern asserted by tailoring an appropriate order, an appropriate production order uh, that you're requesting from a judge. I think these are the considerations that you should be giving. Um, You should be having your outside counsel um, be considering when thinking about discovery of social media in your lawsuits. Finally, our uh, last noteworthy now case is a long-anticipated decision that came out of the Second Circuit. Um, And as most of you know, I suspect, the Second Circuit is the Federal Court of Appeals that covers uh, New York, uh, Vermont, and Connecticut. And there's been this long-awaited decision that just came out of the Second Circuit on the uh, sexual orientation issue. It's not overly surprising, um, and I don't know that it's necessarily game-changing, but it is important, certainly on the federal level. The case name, for those of you keeping score at home, is Zarda versus Altitude Express, and in this case, the Second Circuit became the Second Circuit Court to rule that Title VII does prohibit discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. The rationale, the court found, is that the term because of sex that is found in Title VII encompasses sexual orientation. 
Now, when I say it's not necessarily a game changer, what I mean is that the three uh, states within the Second Circuit, New York, Vermont, and Connecticut, all prohibit sexual orientation discrimination under their respective state laws. So for those employers who had operations in those states, um, if you were doing the right thing uh, and, and complying with the law in both your training and, and your policies and practices, uh, you were already prohibiting discrimination um, on, on the basis of sexual orientation because you had to under state law. But now uh, this Second Circuit decision is um, at least, I guess, important um, for a couple of reasons. It, uh, it goes to the uh, whole sexual orientation, transgender uh, debate that people are having around the country and how are judges viewing uh, the protections afforded uh, those employees in this particular protected class. Um, but it's also important, I guess, keeping to the federal side of things so that the federal system and the remedies under federal law uh, are now in play uh, for those aggrieved individuals uh, who want to bring a sexual orientation case uh, in federal court before the EEOC, I guess, um, and they're litigating in at least the two circuits where uh, sexual orientation is found to be covered by Title VII. So that bears some watching also, and in particular, whether we uh, really start to have a sufficient um, disagreement between the circuit courts of appeals so that the United States Supreme Court ultimately takes up this issue, which I think will happen at some point in the near future. Well, that's about it for today. All kinds of things, as I said, are coming up. I've got a lot of topics I want to talk about. We're anticipating all kinds of fun and exciting decisions coming out. And oh, by the way, the Supreme Court is going to be ruling on the class action waiver issue anytime soon. And uh, if you keep it where it is, keep it right here, we will be analyzing that decision for you as soon as it comes down. So thank you so much for uh, continuing to come back, continuing to download and listen. I get all these great emails from people who have been listening with all kinds of positive feedback. Um, I love and appreciate that. I also really appreciate those of you who have been writing to uh, suggest topics for future episodes, things that you and your company are interested in uh, getting some analysis on and things that you'd love to hear about on our episodes. Please keep all of that coming. Um, I'm doing this to, to hopefully um, give some useful information to all of you. So thanks very much. I hope all is great with everybody. And until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive.